also, you must be complete. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's inevitable at this time of the year, you have sniffles. I hear a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, I also have it as well. So I'm going to try to do the best in the next few minutes to control mine. But I will apologize in advance. I probably will sniffle. So, <laughs> so, oh, so over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some of the acrimony and the antagonism that kind of exist in the world around us. And as a community of faith, I think we agree that sometimes it's hard for us to figure out how to practice love in this world, for that to be the main ethos of who each one of us are. But we believe that if we love God, God is in us, God remains in us, and God gives us power. And the power that God gives us is the power to love, to love God, to love our neighbor, and as we're going to challenge ourselves today, to think about what it means even for us to try to figure out how to love our enemy. Now, I know for myself, and I'm I'm going to assume that for many of you, that we are trying to figure out how to reverse some of the trends of what we are experiencing in the world around us. The rhetoric and the discord, many of us have had enough of it. Amen? We'd like to see something different transpire in our world. To find a different way of seeing and behaving toward one another. That's my assumption, that we'd like to see something different. So how do we do that? What are the practices that we need to inhabit that will help us as a community of faith set a new example? I want to share with you a letter that I found on the uh, Internet this week. It was originally posted in the New York Times. It was an 86-year-old woman's letter to her bank manager complaining of the fact that they bounced her check. I want to share with you how she addressed this situation. She wrote, Dear Sir, I am writing to thank your bank for bouncing my check with which I endeavored to pay my plumber last month. By my calculations, three nanoseconds must have elapsed between his presenting the check and the necessary funds actually being in my account for you to honor it. I refer, of course, to the automatic monthly deposit of my entire pension, at which arrangement I admit has been in place for about eight years now. You are commended for seizing the brief window of opportunity and also for debiting my account the $30 by way of penalty for the inconvenience caused to your bank. Are you getting this? Right? My thankfulness springs from the manner in which this incident has caused me to rethink my errant financial ways. I have noticed that whereas I personally answer your telephone calls and letters when I try to contact you, I am often confronted by the impersonal, overcharging, pre-recorded, faceless entity which your bank has become. For now, or from now on, I would like you to choose, I like you, choose to only deal with flesh and blood people. So, my mortgage and loan payments will therefore and hereafter no longer be automatic. They will be arriving at the, che- at the bank by check, personally addressed and confidentially addressed. Uh, addressed to an employee at your bank, which you must nominate. Imagine that, right? She says, oh, by the way, be aware that it is an offense under the Postal Act for any person to open such envelope if it's not addressed to them, right? And then she says, please find attached an application for your contact. Choose an employee that will complete it on my behalf, right? And I am sorry, it runs eight pages. 
But in order that I know as much about them as your bank knows about me, there is no other alternative. So please note that all copies of his or her medical history must be countersigned by a notary public, and the mandatory details of his or her financial situation, income, debts, assets, and liabilities, must be accompanied by documented proof as well. In due course, at my convenience, I will also issue your designated employee a PIN number, which they must be able to quote whenever they deal with me, but I do regret that it cannot be shorter than 28 digits long. <laughs> I have modeled it, of course, on the number of buttons that I must press in order to access my bank balance on your phone bank service. As they say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So let me level the playing field just a little bit more. When you call me, you will now have to press buttons to be able to find me. Immediately after dialing, press the star button to continue in English. Press 1 to make an appointment to see me. Press 2 to query a missing payment. Press 3 to transfer the call to my living room in case I am in there. Press 4 to transfer the call to my bedroom in case I am sleeping. Press 5 to transfer the call to my toilet in case I am attending to nature. Press 6 to transfer the call to my mobile phone in case I am not at home. Press 7 to leave a message on my computer. Of course, a password to access my computer is required, and password will be communicated to you at a later date to the authorized contact person, as mentioned earlier. Press 8 to return to the main menu and listen to options 1 through 7. Press 9 to make a general complaint or inquiry. The contact will then be put on hold, pending the attention of my automated answering service and press 10 to be reminded that you must press star for English. <laughs> While this may on occasion involve a lengthy wait, uplifting music will play for the duration of the call. Regrettably, but again following your example, I must also levy an establishment fee to cover the setting up of this new arrangement. But may I wish you a happy, if ever so slightly less prosperous new year, your humble client, and remember, don't make old people mad. We don't like being old in the first place, so it doesn't take much to tick us off. <laughs> you think? You know, the number of ways in which we can handle situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in, humor is one of the best ways in which we could probably try to figure out how to resolve some of our disagreements and the conflicts that we have. But seldom do we find ourselves at a point where humor is the first thing that we think of. Because I'm going to say something that I think might shock you, might sound a little cynical, but I, I think our human history proves that for many of us, we have to have an enemy. Our lives have to have an enemy in some way. Now, give me a moment to, to illustrate the point of this through some of our human history. This is pretty obvious for most of us, but if you think about early in the Bible, the story of Cain and Abel is the first story where brother is pitted against brother. Brother becomes enemy of brother to the point that one would kill the other. You think about the Egyptians who begin to fear an immigrant children of Jacob, and they make them their enemy. They enslave them. They impress them for 400 years. We read through the biblical story about empires, empires that become the enemy to clans, and small nation states. And because empires need resources, they keep taking up everything that they can. They overrun and oppress their enemies. This happens century after century. In modern history, more modern times, after the 
the turn of the, the ages, from 1095 to 1291. We know that European Christians and Middle Eastern Muslims battled for possession of the Holy Land in Jerusalem. It's estimated that 200,000 people lost their lives in the Crusades. From 1525 to 1866, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World. 10.7 million actually survived the dreaded Middle Passage, only to be enslaved in North America, the Caribbean, and South America. This is only possible because we saw people as less than human. 1861 to 1865, brother again fought against brother in our Civil War. On the low end, they say that probably 620,000 people died in our Civil War. On the high end, they estimate it could have been as many as 850,000. They just didn't have the ability to keep really accurate records. Between the years of 1914 and 1918, we went to war as a world. 15 to 19 million people died during World War I, the war that was supposed to end all wars. Fast forward 21 years. 1939 to 1945, between 50 and 60 million people died in the Second World War. If you didn't know this, at that time, that was 3% of the world's population died during World War II. Before we knew it, we found ourselves in a Cold War because, you know, we, we need an enemy. We need somebody to be able to be our enemy. From the years 1945 to 1989, we went through the Cold War. A speechwriter for the Reagan administration at the end of the Cold War lamented the fall of the Soviet Union and said, We have lost a worthy adversary. We may never find again in this century an enemy that draws us together, fuels our imagination, and impassions our principles like the old bear. And they were right. For the rest of the 20th century, we really didn't have an enemy. But then in the 21st century, 9-11 happened. And we have a new enemy. And we have the war on terror. Today in our country, we, we talk about enemies a little bit differently. We, we talk about the lines that are drawn between ideology, movements, causes, opinions, differing facts. Think about our national conversation on socialism versus capitalism. Watch the reports on the TV about what's going on in Portland, Oregon, between Antifa and hashtag him too and the battle that they are having. Watch as we label the press the enemy of the people. Or watch on Twitter as one of our government officials talks about the fact that the government has enough nukes that they could use them to enforce the confiscation of guns. We humans. We can be adept at finding, inventing, creating enemies because for many of us, we believe we need an enemy. For some broken reason, we might love having an enemy. But if you notice, Jesus didn't tell us to love the fact that we have an enemy. Jesus told us to literally love our enemies. As I mentioned last week, Jesus' response to the expert in the Jewish law, of course, is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 9. For Jesus, the summation of the 613 commands that are in the Jewish law was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The law and the prophets 
all come down to love for Jesus, right? Jesus says this in reply to a fellow member of his own Jewish community because the law was given to their ancestors. Love the Lord your God was a command to God's covenant people. That was their basis. That was their their number one thing they were supposed to do. Love your neighbor was a command that was given to the Israelites on how they were to treat their fellow Israelites. This was their law. This was their life. But one thing that's not in the law is a command to hate or love your enemy. For nowhere in the Jewish law is there a command to hate or love your enemy. So when Jesus says on the Sermon of the Mount, love your enemy, this is a new radical command that he's giving to anyone who would hear and obey. And it was a a command that Jesus himself was willing to live out in practice. We all know in the story that Jesus eventually gets to the point where he is despised, rejected, he's beaten, he's broken, he is crucified. Luke 23, 34, we hear Jesus' words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In that moment, Jesus is praying that God forgive his own enemies because Jesus is loving his enemies. He didn't curse them from the cross. He doesn't call down heaven's armies to destroy his foes. He didn't accuse them of evil and wrong for killing him, an innocent man. No, he asked God to forgive them, to grant them mercy because Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus was practicing in this moment what he was preaching. And he becomes, for his disciples in that moment, the supreme example of his own command. Because Jesus expected his disciples to then pick that command up and live it out themselves. Because the kingdom of God wasn't something that was at a distance. It inaugurated in Jesus and his disciples. And the kingdom of God was to come here to earth as it is in heaven, and it was a kingdom where there is no enemies. And so they were supposed to love their and pray for those who harass them. By doing so, the disciples would reverse the trends of human instinct and brokenness. They would reverse the trends by loving their enemy, literally loving them, in a powerful and new way. Now, have you ever wondered, though, what gave Jesus the power to do this, to live into this command, to give this command and practice it? For me, I think it comes down to one simple thing. I believe that Jesus saw every person as fully human and ones of worth to God, of sacred worth to God. And I I think we need to live into that command as well. And for us to be able to do so, we've got to recognize everyone around us as being human, fully human, and everyone around us as a person who is also of sacred worth to God. Because that's how love, it is enacted. That's how love separates us from the rest of the world. There are people that are outside of our Christian community, I know, who are experimenting with this in hopes that that enemies can become friends, that to love your enemy might be a better way than war and strife in their world. For those of you who might not realize, Church of the Resurrection in Leawood hosted a, a conversation recently. It was between two men who come from cultures where they are bitter enemies. Now, some of our folks had an opportunity to attend The conversation, I I read about it online and did some research on it. But the two folks were a rabbi by the name of Hanan Schlesinger. He's an Orthodox rabbi. He is a passionate Zionist settler in the West Bank. 
And his conversation partner is a Palestinian, a young Palestinian, by the name of Shaddai Abu Awad. They have, between the two of them, become architects and coordinators of what is called the Roots Youth Movement in the West Bank. Here's the description of their movement. Roots is a Palestinian-Israeli grassroots initiative fostering understanding, nonviolence, and transformation. This organization facilitates unmediated get-togethers and deep conversations between Palestinians and Israelis living in the West Bank. They have no peace plans, but a strong conviction that human understanding and trust are the prerequisites for lasting justice, freedom, and peace, especially for those who are living on this tiny sliver of land they both call home. As I was doing some research, I found an article from Fordham University. Because Fordham had also hosted one of these conversations with these two men. And here's what was written in the article. It says, the rabbi Schlesinger once viewed Palestinians as less than human. And the young Palestinian activist Awad grew up hating Israelis. But they were both forced, they both forced themselves to get to know their neighbor. And in doing so, they have reached a striking realization. Their enemies are humans. They are humans who live, love, and bleed just like them. The title of their lecture is A Painful Hope, Seeing the Humanity of Your Enemy. And I think that's a noble effort, especially in a land that's far from ours, and yet it's such practical advice for those of us that live right here and next to each other. If these two can figure out how to do it, how could we do any less with our own enemies? I think the lesson I see is a bold action, a bold action that we need to live into that demonstrates that we're attempting to try to figure out how to live Jesus' command out in our own world, what it means for us to strive to love even our enemies. Let me give you an example of how that's done, a little bit closer home example. Several years ago, there, there was a local story about, about two young men they were living with one of them's father in a trailer home kind of east of Lee Summit out in the Lone Jack area. The father was getting a little tired of the two young men just sitting around the house doing absolutely nothing. Neither one of them had a job. They weren't financially contributing to help pay the bills. They were just basically consumers in a home that had no margin for that kind of life, right? The father was basically over what he could do. And so he just told the boys, you need to do something. Get a job. The father was an over-the-road driver, and he was getting ready to leave for a trip. And he told the boys, by the time I get back, you need to get this figured out. You need to have jobs, because when I get back, if you don't have jobs, you're going to be on the street. So the father left, went on his trip. The two boys went out trying to figure out what they were going to do. They were desperate young men. They were out driving around one day, and they came across a man who was in a field working on his bulldozer. And Rather than search for work, they thought it would be easier just to rob the man of his, of his cash and his wallet. That was a better solution in their minds than trying to figure out how to get a job. So they approached the old man in the field, demanded that he give them his wallet. He refused. They got into an altercation with him, and the altercation got too violent, and the older gentleman lost his life for his wallet. The boys fled the field with a few dollars in hands, and they left behind thousands of dollars worth of tools that were laid out on the man's truck bed that he had been using to work on his bulldozer. The deceased man's body was found. 
The two boys were also discovered. They were apprehended, charged, tried, convicted of murder, and both of them sentenced to jail. Now, the widow of the deceased man is actually a retired ordained deacon in the Missouri Annual Conference. At this time, she was uh, serving, still actively serving. She attended every aspect of this tragedy, not only her husband's funeral. She also went to the trial. She saw their conviction and the sentencing of these two young men. Now, any of us here, we, we would certainly understand if her anger and sadness would have consumed her and the two young men would have become her bitter enemies, and none of us would have blamed her if she'd have never forgiven them. Right? But there are these words of Jesus in Matthew. You have heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, you must love your enemy and pray for those who harass you. To my colleague's credit, she actually decided to live into that commitment. She reached out to both of the young men through restorative justice and tried to figure out how to express to them forgiveness and reconciliation and to build a relationship with them. One of them actually did respond to her and through remorse and forgiveness, they have become friends. And she's been a part of this young man's life, encouraging him, even though he finds himself in jail still even to this day. All because she chose to see past their crime and see each of them as human and a person of worth to God. You think about these examples. Those of us who suffered probably less, maybe a lot less at the hands of those who harass us. How do we do any less than these two examples, my friend? How do we stop the cycle of making people our enemies? And how do we start a new cycle of seeing each other as fully human, people who are of sacred worth to God? I think the answer is, is intentionality. We've got to control how we respond to the person that's in front of us, the person who we could easily demonize and see as our enemy. I think a couple of things come to mind for me as we, as we conclude. Number one is, is, yes, we have to live into our baptismal covenant. We all know the covenant. We are called as God's people to fight injustice, evil, and oppression in the systemic ways in which they present themselves today. That is our enemy. We need to fight those things in the world while holding on also to belief that all humans are of sacred worth to God. They are people who live, love, and bleed just like each one of us. And they are persons who deserve God's love just like we do. Maybe that should be our prevailing principle that guides our words, our actions. Because when we believe that God is in us and we remain in God, we believe that we have the power to love. The power to love God, the power to love our neighbors, even the power to love our enemies. Would you join me in prayer? God of mercy and grace, we know that the scripture says that we who once were in sin were once your enemies. And yet through the power of your love for each of us, you overcame that. You drew us close to you and you made us your own children. You saw us as a person of sacred worth. And through forgiveness and grace, we are trying to live into that each and every day. Help us to see this command of Jesus, how he not only preached about it, but how he lived it himself, and how we as your people are supposed to live into it as well. 
It's pretty easy sometimes for us to love you. It's not really hard to think about loving our neighbor. Boy, when it comes to our enemies, that may be where it's harder for us, more challenging. Help us to be reminded, O God, that they are another person created in your image just like we are, that you value them as much as you value us, and that we are supposed to reach across to these divides with hands of love and grace. Help us to be intentional about that in the moments where we want to act differently, respond differently. We pray this in Christ's name.